So, Father, we uh, thank you for this time that you've given us to open up your word. And I ask the Holy Spirit that you would help us to understand this passage today, that uh, it wouldn't just be head knowledge, but it would be truth that we can believe, we can trust in, that we can live. May uh, this time be glorifying to you. Uh, help me, Lord, as I uh, go through this passage. I don't want to stand in the way of your message. So I ask for uh, extra help and um, blessing on this time. We thank you again for being such a good God, a great God, a God who hears us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to the book of Ephesians. And our passage this morning that we're, we're going to look at is actually found in chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at verses 14 through 21. It is Paul's second prayer in uh, this book, in this letter, this ancient letter. Um, there's only two, two uh, prayers uh, in the entire letter. The first one is uh, found in uh, chapter 1, uh, and it comes off of the shoulders of Paul's giant exhortation to God. It's uh, verse, chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 14 is uh, in the original language, which was Greek. It's one giant sentence made of 202 words saying that God is worthy to be praised. Why? Well, he breaks it down into three things. Well, because we've been chosen by God the Father. We've been redeemed by God the Son. And we have been sealed by God the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that we're going to ha uh, receive an, our eternal um, inheritance. And it is right out of that exhortation, Paul prays. And if you look with me in chapter 1, verse 17, this is kind of the gist of his prayer here. Starting at verse 17 of chapter 1, he pray, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, the church in Ephesus, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul's basically saying, I pray that you, your knowledge, your understanding of God would grow more and more, especially God's work in our lives, the lives of the believers that we would be able to know uh, God's power, not just simply know it, but experience God's power. And that power that resides within us through the, through the Holy Spirit is the same power that rose Christ from the dead. And so from there, Paul then jumps into chapter 2, where he talks about if you're in Christ, you have been saved. And what God has done in the life of a believer is, is truly miraculous. But then he goes on to, to, to add more to the fact that we've been, our sins have been forgiven and we were spiritually dead or now spiritually alive. He then goes on to, zero, um, to, to talk to the, the, the two groups that would be meeting in this, uh, this church, the Jews and the Gentiles. 
He says now the Jews and the Gentiles are not just two groups meeting in one church, but they're actually one group. They are the church. They are the body of Christ. That they've been not only reconciled to God, but they've been reconciled to each other. That they're, part, they're citizens of God's eternal kingdom. That they're part of God's family. So these Jews and these Gentiles are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is that truth, that amazing truth, that Paul is inspired to pray yet again in the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for this reason. But before he goes into the prayer, he digresses back to talk about this amazing truth of the Jews and the Gentiles coming together. And he refers to it as the mystery, a mystery that in times past during the Old Testament, it wasn't revealed. But now, after Christ, it has been fully revealed to us through the apostles and prophets. And what is that mystery? If we look at uh, chapter 3, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, literally are co-heirs co-members of the body and co-partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so then Paul continues going on and then we get to verse 14 and Paul jumps back into that prayer. Using the same language, he says, for this reason, he's gonna pray for the, the Ephesian church. And it makes sense that Paul would pray at this time because you have two groups, okay, Jews and Gentiles, they grew up hating each other. You know, the, the, their, their parents taught them to hate each other. Their parents before their parents taught them, and so on and so forth. For generations, they've been hating each other, having this animosity towards one another. But now, they're part of the same family. They are the church. They are the body of Christ. They're not just, you know, us and them. It's like, how, how is this going to work? How is this going to happen? How are the Jews and the Gentiles going to get along? Well, it's going to require help. This is a God-sized problem, and it requires a God-sized solution. And so God prays. I mean, Paul prays. He prays that God would strengthen the Ephesians. They're going to need strength in order to, 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 to love each other, to serve one another, to be the church. He, he prays that they would know the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ that's going to inspire them to, to love each other. The last request is that they would be filled with the fullness of God, that God would be controlling them. And then he finally ends this, this section with a, a, an amazing doxology. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to go ahead and read through this entire passage, and then we'll take our time kind of unpacking it together. So chapter 3, starting at verse 14, Paul says, For this reason, in light of this amazing truth, the Jews and Gentiles are not just two groups in the church. They are the church. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him 
be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I like to put myself in Paul's shoes whenever I read these prayers. These prayers are very, very personal. And at the time that Paul's writing this letter, Paul's a prisoner in Rome. Uh, he, he's, he's, we don't have all the details, but most likely he's under house arrest. Now, whenever we hear of, you know, individuals being on house arrest, usually CEOs and bigwigs, you know, and, oh, poor me, they have to stay in their $5 million mansion, you know, oh, oh, play the little violin for them. That wasn't the case for Paul. Paul was in a, play, uh, in a, in a room, a, a little dwelling place that most likely he had to pay the rent for. And uh, he was chained 24-7 to a Roman guard. And there's no telling whether the, the, the Roman guard would, rotation would change every few hours. So there's no telling whether or not this Roman guard would be reasonable and this other guard would be unreasonable and harsh and cruel. It wasn't a great situation for Paul. Not only that, but you also had to provide for your own basic needs, which if you're under house arrest, it doesn't mean you're going to be going to the market anytime soon. So you're having to record you rely on the, 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 the donations from other believers in Christ, other family members and, and, and friends. So it's, it's not a great situation that Paul finds himself in. Further, he's a pastor, and he loves the church, especially in, in Ephesus. Out of all the places that Paul ministered, uh, all the cities that, that Paul ministered, it, it is... Um, in the city of Ephesus where Paul ministered the longest, at least what's recorded in scripture. He was ministering in Ephesus for over three years. That's a long time. Ephesus was a very prosperous city, but it was a very dark, spiritually dark city as they worshiped gods and goddesses and practiced magic and sorcery and witchcraft. And so Paul's working in this, in this city. He's proclaiming the gospel. He plants a church. He trains up leaders to be overseers of this church. And then he goes on to Jerusalem. But before he leaves to Jerusalem, he gathers all the elders together and he tells them, hey, listen, when I leave, things are going to get bad. Wolves are going to appear. They're going to come from within the church. The false teachers are going to come in to the church. They're going to cause some trouble. Not only that, but you're going to have external pressures of Rome, the first century Rome, uh, persecuting you because of your belief in Christ. At the time of Paul's um, writing of this letter, it's around 60, 61 AD. And so Nero, Emperor Nero, is ruling and reigning, and he's just starting to tighten his belt on the persecution of the church. And so what's a bad, what, what's a bad situation is becoming even worse. And Paul is in prison. He's on the house arrest. He can't be there. Again, put yourself in his shoes. He loves his church. He can't be there. He can't be there to encourage them. He can't be there to challenge them, to give them further instruction. So what does he do? He prays. The thing is, it's not the only thing that Paul does, could do. It's the thing Paul can do for this church, to pray for this church. And so that's what he's going to do. And so let's go ahead and kind of dive in and unpack this amazing prayer that Paul has for the Ephesians. So first section we're going to look at is the introduction to this prayer, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And when he says, I bow my knees, he's not saying, I bow occasionally or once in a while. He's saying, I continually bow my knees before the Father. In uh, his first prayer in chapter 1, Paul 
makes it known to the Ephesians that he's continually praying for this church. And again, if I were to put my, myself in the first church, this early church's shoes, that must have been very, very uh, encouraging to hear your pastor, someone you love, someone you respect saying, I'm thinking of you all the time and I'm praying for you, continually praying for you. Paul loved the church and so he prayed for the church. And I would, I would submit to this church that if you love this church, that you would commit to continually praying for this church, especially during this season that we're going through. But notice uh, Paul's humble posture here. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, typically people would pray standing up. Some people would raise their hands. Some people would bow their heads, close their eyes. Some people would look up at the sky. Others would lay prostrate on the ground. Uh, Like Daniel, the prophet Daniel, Paul would bow on his knees to pray. Again, it's just showing a very, this is a very humble Posture. Now, when it, when it comes to humility, especially in regards to, to our devotion to, to, to God, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. It's putting ourselves in the, in the right perspective between who we are and who God is. I mean, look at what verse 15 says. From whom every, he's praying to God, the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, literally, it's, it's not just, he's not referring to a p- different families here. He, the word he uses for family is, is one lineage, an offspring from one uh, father, a nation, clan, group. And it's literally from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, as followers of Jesus, we are part of the household of God. We are his children. He is our father. And there are brothers and sisters here serving on earth. And there are other brothers and sisters who have already passed on who are in heaven with God. Right? I mean, that's just, we, we see that. Uh, in not only, uh, we see that in scripture again and again. But if we were to look at this even at a much bigger scale, all of creation... All created beings owe their existence to God. All of cre- all created beings, whether on earth or in heaven, owe their existence to God. Every man, woman, and child owes their existence to God here on this planet. Whether they follow God or not, they owe their existence to God. God has given them life. God has created them. God has allowed them to be born into this world. Similarly, you have angelic beings up in the heavenly places, up in the spirit realm, the unseen realm that we can't see, that um, owe their existence to God. Now, however you take verse 15, whether it's, it's, it's more focused on the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, or more referring to all of creation who owe their existence to, to, the, to God, uh, you come up with the same conclusion, that God is big that God is great, that God is sovereign. Now, we talked about this last week. The sovereign, sovereign, the word there, is not a word that you find in Scripture. It's a word that theologians have attached to some truths that we find in Scripture, that God is creator, he is sustainer, he is ruler, he is the one in control. Not in the sense that he's a puppet master, but nothing happens apart from him allowing it to happen. God is in control. God is sovereign. And so what is Paul's response to this amazing God? I bow my knees before the Father. 
oh, I know who I am. I know who he is. And that just humbles me. It should humble us. It really should humble us. And I, again, I think even more so with Paul because Paul used to persecute the church. Now he's praying for the church. His life has changed so dramatically. He's been chosen by God to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles. He's like, me? Who used to arrest Christians, persecute the church, wanted to see the church destroyed? Now, Lord, you're using me to build this church up? That, that must have made Paul really humble. If you think about it, wow, God, I cannot believe this. This is an amazing opportunity. So he has a humble posture. God, he's praying to a God who's so great, so amazing. He's the very definition of awesome. And yet look how Paul addresses him. Verse 14, I bow my knees or continually bow my knees before the Father. God is not this impersonal cosmic being that Paul has a, is communicating with. God is Paul's heavenly Father. He is God's child. This should change the way you think or look at praying. I know it did for me. When I was really, really young, I, I, I wanted to know how to pray. I didn't really know how prayer worked and how to talk to God, what's appropriate to talk to God. And, you know, I would hear friends say, hey, big man upstairs, and yo, dude, come to you to ask for this and whatever. I'm like, I don't really know if that's the way you're supposed to pray. How are you? And, um, what I heard, you know, through the sermons and through teaching that God is, reading the Bible, especially that God is Father, I took it to mean that that's his title, much like my family, who a lot of my family are Catholic. And they would refer to their pastors as Father Thomas, Father Williams, Father Joe, or whatever. That It's just a title for their position. And I thought, well, God is Father. That's just a title for his position. Until I realized, it was taught to me, and I continue reading through God's word, that God as Father is not so much focused on the title as it is the relationship. It is a relationship we have with God. We are his children. We are part of his family. He is our heavenly Father. Now, what's very sad is that there are a lot of... Um, a lot of individuals who grew up with either no father or really bad father, which has led to lots of father, deep, deep father wounds. Uh, a number of years ago, I'm trying to remember if it was like 2015 or so, the statistic was uh, 45 to 50% of kids uh, will grow up in a fatherless home. And it's not to say in, in all of the country, 45 to 50% of kids, I don't know if the that percentage has gone up since then. Most likely it has. But it's not to say that the, fa the fathers aren't just living in another house or in another state somewhere and they'll meet with them occasionally. No, this is talking about these children have fathers who want nothing to do with them. 45 to 50%. That's back again, like 2015, 2016 maybe. And uh, two years ago, there was an, an article... Um, and I don't remember, it was not a, a Christian magazine that this article was written in. It was a secular, regular, that you would see a pickup at the market. Um, but the, the, the title or the summary of the article really grabbed my attention because it said the, the greatest epidemic 
in our country is not COVID, it's fatherlessness. And it goes on to list all these statistics that children who grow up without fathers are more than likely to get into crime, to join a gang, to uh, get addicted to drugs or alcohol, to um, eventually become, you know, go in and out of prison and eventually become repeat offenders, meaning that they get some other poor girl pregnant and they just walk away starting that whole cycle of pain and brokenness all over again. There are others who have, uh, have fa- who've had fathers, but their fathers were absolutely horrible. They were wicked. They were cruel. You never went to your father for love. Your father just came to you to beat you down, to tear you up physically, verbally. And so when it comes to this this concept that God is our father, for a lot of these individuals who grown up either without a father or with a bad father, the tragedy is that they tend to judge their heavenly father based off of their earthly father. If their father wasn't there, then that's how they're going to view God. God's just never really going to be there. If their dad, earthly dad, was abusive and scary, well, then their heavenly father is the exact same way. He's someone who's scary, who's just out to hurt me. But the reality is, is God, our heavenly father, is perfect. Our earthly fathers, whether they were loving fathers, I had a loving father, not perfect, but a loving father. We have a perfect heavenly father. And we are to get to know our heavenly father through his word where he has revealed himself and, and judge him for how he's revealed in scripture rather than our earthly fathers, who our earthly fathers were, whether they were present, whether they were absent. And when we read about this, this God in scripture, our father, he's exactly what uh, the, the famous Chris Tomlin song proclaims. You're a good, good father. That's who he is. That's who he is. He's a good, good father. And we have access to the father. Now, this is, again, really, really important when we come to prayer. And I talked about this a number of weeks ago when we were going through prayer uh, and through the book of Philippians. Um, You can only pray to God the Father if you're in Christ. You can only pray to God if you, you can only have access to God. Let me say that. That's another way. You can only have access to God if you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, that you're following the course of this world. You're following the, the, the way of Satan. You're following after your own lust. You are by nature a children, of, a children of wrath, a child of wrath, not deserving of blessing. But once you come into Christ then you have access to the Father. So the only prayer that anyone outside of Christ can make is to call upon the name of the Lord, Lord, help me. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe that Jesus is my Savior, and I want Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. I want to be in Christ. I want to receive the Holy Spirit. That's a prayer that God will listen to. But, you know, whenever someone says, oh, I'm praying for you, that's great. If they're in Christ, then that's, that's very encouraging. If they're not in Christ, that's a waste of time because they have no access to God. The only way you have access to God is through Christ, by being in Christ. 
Some people will say, and I, I, again, why I bring that up is I've had a recent conversation with an individual who believes you don't have to follow Christ in order to receive the benefits of God. I don't have to surrender my life to Christ, but I could pray to God to help me in my problems. It doesn't work that way. The only way you have access to God, the Father, is through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're not in Christ, the prayer that you should be praying is, Father, help me. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus is my Savior. And then you go forward on that. So Paul says, I continually bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. And now he's going to go into the first request, verses 16 through 18, where he's going to request for strength. He prays, verse 16, that he, God, would grant you, that God would bestow, freely give you, according to the riches of his glory. So the first thing we learn is that this strength is according to the riches, according to the abundance of God's glory. Does God's glory ever fade? No. That's a very easy question. No. (laughs) God's glory will never fade. It will never go away. It is unlimited glory. And this prayer that Paul is making, he says, I I pray that you would be strengthened according to the abundance, the limitless supply of God's glory. It reminds me of uh, Exodus chapter 34 where Moses is up in the mountain and when he comes down, uh, the residual of God's glory is glowing off of his face. I mean, I don't even know how that works. But you can think about it. He's in the presence of God, in God's glory, and as he comes off the mountain, bits and pieces of God's glory is still attached to him somehow, where he actually ends up wearing a veil to kind of cover up that brightness. It's like that's just a little taste of the glory of God. When they make uh, um, the, the people of Israel construct the tabernacle, and God's uh, presence fills the tabernacle. No one could go into the tabernacle. Why? Because God's glory was in there. Years later, later on in, in Israel's history, they construct the temple. And when the temple was completed, God's glory fills the temple. But none of the, the priests could go in and serve in the temple. Why? Because God's glory was in the temple. God's glory is so magnificent, so amazing. Uh, John Newton is a, is a famous uh, pastor. He, he wrote uh, the lyrics to the song Amazing Grace. Um, he, prior to uh, turning his life over to Christ, he used to serve on a slave ship. Uh, then he, he, he stopped doing that, became a, a Christian and later on a pastor. But he wrote a little poem regarding prayer. And I just want to read it to you. He says, when you're praying, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. Why? For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. (laughs) That's just, ooh, chills. Really? Paul's praying that the, the church in Ephesus would be strengthened according to the abundance of his glory that will never fade away. Here's the thing. Your view of God will influence your prayer life. Your view of God will influence your prayer life. 
if you reduce God to simply a, a bunch of rules, regulations that will help you live a moral life, uh, just, God is just, a, I have to follow these expectations that will make me a good Christian. You're missing out on something so amazing, relationship. When God is reduced to a bunch of rules, regulations, and expectations, there is no relationship. And so your first thing, whenever something happens in your life or you're getting up, you're not really going to prayer because you don't have that relationship. God is really, oh, he's a father, but that relationship is kind of absent there. For others, they may see God as small. Maybe they wouldn't, they wouldn't actually admit that, but they look at the problem that they're encountering and they say, well, this is a Mount Everest of a problem and God just can't help it. God can't deal with it. So I have to do everything in my power to deal with this issue. So prayer is not the first thing that they go to. Prayer is the last resort. And you've heard people say this. I think this is probably one of the most a common things, at least in my experience working in the church, the common thing I hear from people, oh, I've tried everything. The last thing I could do is pray. Have you heard that? I've tried everything. Now all I guess I can do is pray. That's the, old, that's the last resort? It's like, are you kidding me? It should be the first thing. But again, if God is too small, then I have to deal with this problem first, and then eventually I'll go to God. If God is big and glorious, if, if he strengthens us with the, uh, according to the riches of his glory, that will never go away. My goodness, how can I not go to God for everything in my life? Any issue that comes in my life, how can I not go to him? He's big enough. There is no issue that's too big for God to handle. Think about that. Let's be a little bit more practical. Rub you guys, the, the, make you bristle a little bit. We're in a season right now in our church where there's transition. My time at this church is going to be coming to an end. The question is, what's going to happen? Do you think God is big enough to handle that pit problem? Then that should inspire us to pray. Now, oh, oh, gosh, we got we to figure out how to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this. And if we can't figure out what to do, then we got to pray. No, no, pray. I mean, by all means, don't just sit on your bottoms and do nothing. Do something. But pray. God is big enough. So Paul is praying. Paul knows that the, 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 the church in Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles, getting along, that's a God-sized problem, and it needs a God-sized solution. So Paul says, I pray that they'd be strengthened according to the riches of his glory. Look at what he says next. He says, to be strengthened with power. The word to be strengthened means to render strong, to increase vigor, to become powerful. These two words can almost, almost, not completely, but they can almost be redundant. It could be, I pray according to the riches of God's glory that you would become powerful with power. <laughs> that that you wouldn't that you you know, I, I brought this up again a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of the famous things that people say nowadays is like, "Oh, I'm sending my positive thoughts your way. I'm sending my positive vibes." And it's like that's just as helpful as I don't know nothing. It's nothing. It's not helpful at all. 
Paul's not saying, Lord, I pray that you strengthen them with positive thoughts. I pray that you strengthen them with positive vibes. No. I pray that you strengthen them with power. Dunamis right there. Power. Through who? Through his spirit. Through his Holy Spirit, which, guess what, is already at work in you. So this strength is according to the riches of God's glory. This strength is with power. This strength is through the Spirit. This strength, Paul says, is in the inner man. Paul brings up this, this phrase, inner man, in Romans chapter 7 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's, it's, it's referring to the spiritual side of our lives, that we are beings who are not just physical beings, we are physical and spiritual beings. And that's what Paul's referring to, the inner man. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, you know, we don't lose hope even though our outer side, our outer part of us, the physical side, is wasting away. But he says that our inward selves are being renewed every single day. This is not uh, uh, just um, a power, a, strength, a power that they, that they witness. This is a power that they will experience through the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, I, I pray that you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And what is the result of this, uh, of this strengthening? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And the question is, well, wait a minute. If we're already in Christ, doesn't Christ already dwell with us? You know, Jesus told his disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I will be in you and you will be with me. That's true. Yes, you're in Christ. Christ is with you. So what is Paul getting at here? The, the, the key lies to the word dwell, lies in the word dwell. There are two words in the Greek that, that, that get typically translated as dwell. There's paroikeo and katoikeo. Parokeo refers to a sojourner, so, sojourner, so, sojourner, traveler, because I can't say sojourner for right, sojourner. Either way, traveler, you know what you're getting at, right? A traveler, a merchant who sets up camp either inside the city or outside the city walls, and they're going to conduct business there. They may stay for a day, a two week, months, maybe even a few years, but eventually they're going to pack everything up and they're going to move on. Katoikeo means to establish a permanent residence. It means to settle down. Now, if you ever go to a hotel, not like a, a you know, five-star hotel, just a normal, standard hotel, when you go into that room, do you automatically say, okay, now I need to remove that wall there, open up some space, add some more lights, change the curtains here, the carpet needs to get out, we got to paint this, oh, and the sink is leaking, i got to fix that sink. Is that what you're doing when you're in the hotel? No. Why? Because I'm going to leave. It's not my home. But if it is your home, what do you do? Well, you invest into it, right? You invest in it. You, okay, I'm going to pull up the old carpet. I'm going to paint. I'm going to seal up that hole that's in the plaster. I'm going to, you know, put a garden around the house. You're investing. You're settling down. And Paul's prayer is that this church would be strengthened in power, through the, through the, strengthened with power through the, in the, through, the power, through the Holy Spirit so that Christ may settle down in their hearts. 
that, 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 that this would result in a homey heart for Christ. Christ doesn't want our lives to be like hotels. Like, okay, I'll, I'll come and visit you when you're going through that really difficult season, and I'll be there as long, I'll be with you every step of the way, and then when that season's gone, I'll go ahead and go. Because you got this, you're good. You don't need me. No. Jesus wants to dwell, wants to make a home in our hearts. And the word doesn't, when Paul says heart, he doesn't literally mean our pumping heart. He's referring to our lives. God wants to make a permanent dwelling. He wants to be settled down in our lives. There's a, a famous essay written by a guy named uh, Robert Boyd Munger. He wrote something called My Heart, Christ's Home, in which he illustrates, he uses this passage to illustrate the life of an individual believer like a house. Christ is welcomed inside, and Christ, they start walking around the rooms, the library, the kitchen, and, you know, different parts of the house. And every place, you know, the, the, the man is like, okay, we're in the study. Here are all the things that I fill my mind with. Jesus, can you help me decide what book to read? Can you help me figure out what to fill my mind with, Jesus? Like, absolutely. Here, let me bring in my books. Let me bring in my library. And go into the kitchen, and Jesus says, okay, what's, what's, your, what's your diet like? And he says, well, you know, I, I really feast on, uh, you know, a good portion of, of money and, and fame. And Jesus is like, well, no, no, let's, let me give you a different diet, because that diet's not going to help you. Let me change it with humility and growing, you know, basically that's, that's how the, the essay goes. And the idea is the question that's left to the readers of this essay is how much access of our lives do we give to Christ? How much access of our lives? Okay, Jesus, you're okay in my li- the library of my life. You're okay in my kitchen of my life. But when it comes to how I spend my money, when it comes to how I spend my free time with my friends, when it comes to how I cope with stress, leave that alone. You know, that, that's not a room I want you to, 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 to deal with. That's not Jesus' desire. Jesus doesn't want to simply uh, live in your home. He wants to rule your home. He wants to rule our lives. Now, that's kind of, well, that's not kind of, it is politically incorrect in our day because it's my life, my choice, right? That's what we hear but we recognize that Jesus is a good, loving God who loves us and wants the best for us, who else would you want ruling over your life? He's perfect. In in John's letter, he says, in him is light and there is no darkness. He's always good. Jesus desires to, to, to live in our lives, not just parts of our lives. He wants the entire thing. Which part of our lives are we allowing him access to? Are there closets that we're not opening up toward him? The more and more Paul is living in our, uh, the more and more Christ is living in our lives, the more and more Christ is guiding our lives. And that is extremely important, particularly for this church in Ephesus who are dealing with these divisions between Jews and Gentiles. Now we're one family. How is this going to work? Well, you need to be strengthened. You need to be strengthened through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
so that Christ may dwell in you, that Christ may rule in your lives. This will help you be reconciled to each other, to live a life as one body, as one church. So this strength, Paul's request, this strength is in accordance with the riches of God's glory. This strength is with power. This strength is through the Spirit. This strength is in the inner man. It's something that can be experienced. This strength results in a homey heart, a settled-down heart for Christ. This strength also results in a comprehension of the Spirit's power. Look at verse 18. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, those two verbs there, rooted and grounded, are a perfect tense. This is something that has already happened in the past. When you came to Christ, and the results of that action have or, are, are still continuing. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. Now, that word comprehend is an interesting word. It's katalambano. It's a word that Paul uses throughout other letters, and it literally means to take eagerly, to seize, to lay hold of, to grasp. There's intensity to it. There's like this... this um, Passion. It's like, oh, I, I see this as good. I see this as valuable for my life. I grasp it. That you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, contrary to some popular opinions, this verse uh, uh, regarding, um, what is it? This verse, verse 18 as Paul's using these dimensional terms, he's not des describing the vastness of God's love for his people because he's going to bring that up later on in verse 19. And for those of you who are, are Greek nerds or grammar nerds, in verse 19, he begins with the word and, which is the Greek word te, which means that he's separating, he's starting another subject here. Grammatically, he's no longer talking about the power of God. He's moving on to another request. So here in verse 18, He's talking about understanding, comprehending, seizing, grabbing on uh, the, the greatness, the vastness of God's uh, power. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, I don't know exactly when, but some archaeologists uh, uncovered uh, two magical manuscripts. And uh, one of the spells or formulas, whatever you want to call it, um, use these exact words in succession, breath, length, height, depth. And the context is uh, a magician seeking illumination into all aspects of a deity's power. This is what I love about Paul. Paul is what uh, missiologists would, uh, would, would, um, would call a contextualizer. They contextualize, meaning they, they take parts of their culture. They don't participate in that culture, but they take the context of that culture that they're ministering in, and they use it as a bridge toward the gospel or towards truth. And that's what Paul does again and again and again, using language that the people in Ephesus would understand. When he says that Christ has been exalted above all rulers and authorities, above every name that is named, well, those are la that's language right out of their magical manuscripts that the Ephesians practiced including this, these four words here, breath, length, height, and depth. Paul prays that God will strengthen the Ephesian believers to grasp the magnitude of his incomparably great power. It was even hard for me to say that, incomparably great power. God's power is absolutely amazing. God's a great God. 
Then he moves on, verse 19, to the second request. So he says, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. The verb that he uses for to, to know is the Greek word gnosko. There's two words, oida, gnosko, oida, refers to intellectual knowledge. Gnosko refers to a knowledge that you experience. So some, some scholars would say experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge that you are well acquainted with. So Paul's prayer is not only that they would be uh, strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that also they would know on a personal level the love, the agape love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And the, use, the word he uses for surpasses is the Greek word huperbelong. Hooper below, which, which is a technical term referring to a, an athlete who's throwing a, a javelin or disc or whatever, and they overshoot their target. They go way beyond their target. So give you like an over, you know, uh, an illustration. It's like if someone hits a baseball, it's not just a grand slam. It goes out of the stadium, across the parking lot, into the next neighborhood. It's like that kind of over-exaggeration. So this love, this love, what Paul's saying, what Paul's doing is, is he's saying, I pray, God, that you would strengthen them not only to grasp the vastness of your power, but also to know on a personal level your love, which is unknowable. That's kind of weird. I, I pray that they know your unknowable love. Your love that is so vast, so amazing, so deep that we'll spend eternity just getting to know more and more and more. There's um, uh, a verse that uh, was found, oddly enough, in a mental institution. Uh, the, the man who had been staying in that room uh, during his, he had passed away. And so they were clearing out all of his, his belongings. But during supposedly his, one of his lucid moments, he scribbled out this verse um, reflecting on the love of God that ended up getting attached to an old hymn. Uh, and it was discovered years later that this, this verse, this little poem here, um, was actually written back in 1050 AD by a Jewish rabbi who was contemplating through the, meditating through the Psalms and contemplating the love of God. Look what he says. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole those stretched from sky to sky. The vastness of God's love, of the love of Christ. Paul recognizes that this love is going to help the Ephesian believers because in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, John says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again, this is a God-sized issue that the, 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 the Jews and the Gentile believers are dealing with. It requires a God-sized solution that they be strengthened 
with the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ would settle into their hearts and that they would know the unknowable love of Christ toward them and that love would inspire them to show love toward each other. The last request that uh, Paul makes is that you, the last part of verse 19, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Now, the word he uses for fullness is the Greek word pleroma. Again, that's a word that the people in Ephesus would have really understood, recognized. A pleroma was only achievable to the spiritually elite. It was, uh, depending on, on your devotion to the gods, to your service to the gods, to your, your worship of the gods, uh, that would determine whether or not you would re, uh, experience the pleroma, the fullness of the gods, the fullness of everything that the spirit realm has to offer. And so as Christians were, these, these, these Gentiles being brought up in that uh, society were coming to Christ, there were some false teachers coming along and, and uh, this kind of teaching Paul uh, addresses in his letter to the Colossians where the, the teaching was, you know, okay, it's okay for you to follow Jesus, but Jesus isn't enough. If you have Jesus, you're not experiencing play Roma. You need to follow Jesus and Aphrodite and Zeus and all these other gods and goddesses and pray to these spirit beings. And then, then you'll experience play Roma. Then you'll experience fullness. But Paul says in Colossians that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So if you have Jesus, you have Pleroma. So then what is, what is Paul saying here? That you may be filled to all the fullness of God. What is he getting at? If we already have the fullness of God, what, what is Paul getting at here? Um, if I can get it out of my pocket, I have a balloon. Now, is this balloon technically filled with air? Yeah, well, you could say carbon dioxide, whatever, but just go with me here, okay? Is it filled with air? Yeah. Could it be filled more? Absolutely. See, as Christians, we, when, we're, we, we, when we are in Christ, when we receive Christ, we receive the fullness of Christ. But can we be filled more? Can we receive more of that fullness? Yeah. Absolutely. The more we study God's word, the more we pray, the more we live and love each other, we experience more and more of that fullness. <laughs> yes, I pass out. Um, wanted to do that. Um, give you another example. It's like when I married uh, Brianna, I didn't just marry a part of Brianna. I married all of Brianna. You could say I married the fullness of Brianna. But at the, from the moment I said I do, did I, did I experience all the fullness of Brianna? No. It's going to take all my life to get to know the allness of Brianna. It's a whole life thing. And for us as well as Christians, we have the fullness of God in us because we have Christ in us. Can we experience more? Absolutely. This is something that Paul is going to bring up later on in chapter 5 when he's, he gives the command, be filled with the Spirit. You already have the Spirit. 
how are you, you can be filled more. And it's the idea of the more you're filled, the more you're controlled. The more you're guide, God's able to guide you and direct you in your life. And so obviously this church in, in uh, Ephesus, in how to figure out negotiating, how, how we as Jews and Gentiles work together, how we become this thing called the church, the family of God. Well, Paul's prayer is that they'd be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would know the love of Christ and that they would be filled with the fullness of God, that God would control them, that God would lead them and guide them and direct them so that they could be the family, brothers and sisters in the Lord. So then we get to verses 20 to 21, which is a doxology. This is basically, doxology is just an expression of praise to God. And here, uh, Paul's going to bring up God's greatness and God's glory. So in verse 21, he's going to bring up God's greatness. He says, now to him who is able to do, the first thing we realize is that God is not idle. God is not just sitting down on a couch somewhere, eating a bunch of bonbons or chips, watching a football game, waiting to, to do something. You know, I'll occasionally turn the channel to see what's happening on the world, and then maybe I'll act. No, God is always acting. God is always moving. God is, is, is constantly working. And look what Paul says, now to him who is able, literally to him who is capable, to him who is sufficient to meet a task, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. The word he uses for far more abundantly could literally be translated beyond furthest degree. Super abundantly. Again, it's one of those exaggerated uh, words to show the vastness of what God is capable of doing. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond we can ask, beyond what we could request, beyond what we could think, beyond what we could imagine, according to the power that works within us. Now again, back to God's power. Is God, does God's power run dry? No. God has an unlimited resource of power. And it is according to this power, the riches of his glory, that he is able to do far beyond what we could even ask or imagine. And then Paul adds this little thing at the end of verse 20. According to the power that works within us. That same power resides in us. And um, in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, Second Corinthians, if you ever read it, it's a very personal letter for Paul. Paul's uh, spending time, you know, kind of uh, um, bringing up his past. He's, he's, he's kind of confirming his authority as an apostle. Um, he's defending his uh, right to do what he's doing. Um, but he's very honest uh, in what he's experiencing. And it's, 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 he's honest on purpose. I'm just going to read a few passages in, in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 8, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, 
so that we despaired even to live. You gotta think that's pretty severe. We even despaired to live. Indeed, we had the sentence of death. But then they focused their attention on God. They set their hope on God. In uh, chapter four, starting at verse seven, Paul says, but we have this treasure referring to the gospel, the gospel of our salvation, this treasure in earthen vessels, literally jars of clay, a great picture of humanity. We're like these fragile jars of clay that contain this amazing treasure of the gospel. But we are this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. In every way, afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Then later on in chapter uh, 11, Paul says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to for my weakness. Why? Because it is within his weakness where God shows himself powerful. That power is at work in us. Working in us and through us is a power that we can experience. Paul, I mean, God, Paul's emphasizing again that God is a great God, God is a big God, that this issue that the, 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 the church in Ephesus is, is dealing with is a God-sized issue and requires a God-sized solution. And God is big enough to address their unity, to bring them together, not just as two groups, but as one body in Christ, one fellowship, one family, God is great. Then he brings up the glory of God and how it's displayed. He says to him, verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever or literally to the ages, the age of the ages, amen. So where's the, the, where God's uh, glory displayed first? Well, he says here, to him be the glory in the church. Last week we talked about how Paul has a, throughout the the book of Ephesians, he has a high view of the church. That the church is not a building. The church is not a bunch of programs. It's not uh, a library. It's not a tract rack. It's not bulletin boards. It's not speakers and sound systems. It's not chairs. It's not little studies and groups that meet in here or decoration parties or pot blessings. Are those part of the church? Yes. Are they the church? Absolutely not. The Bible, what Paul says here when he, when he brings up the church, it's the Greek word ekklesia, it's the called out assembly. It's the people. We are the church. We are the church. United by the same spirit. For the glory of God, to display God's glory to the world. I mean, think about that. How, how good are we at doing that? 
as a church, as here at Cascade Bible Church, how, how do we display the glory of God? Or better yet, how do we shroud the glory of God? By not loving each other. By not serving one another. By not growing and maturing together. The church displays the glory of God in this world. Um, earlier on, I, I brought up the passage in Exodus 34 and how Moses goes down off the mountain and he has the residuals of God's glory shining on his face. Well, Paul brings this up in his letter to the Corinthians. And, and, he, and he's making a compare and contrast. He's like, listen, the residual glory on, on Moses' face, that's, that's something. Just gives you a little taste of the glory of God. The glory of this new covenant in Christ. The, the, this, this new glory that's displayed in the church is far more greater, more glorious than even that glory. Just to give that weight. Do you, do you see the weight of, of the privilege we have to live in this time to be a part of this thing called the church? We display the glory of Christ. The second place is this, uh, God's glory is displayed is in, he says, in Christ Jesus. As long as Christ is proclaimed in this world, as long as the good news is shared, God's glory is revealed to this world. To all the generations forever and ever, amen. Some people will, would say that this world that we live in is becoming more and more dark. It's just getting more and more dark. Now, selfishly, I would say, Lord, slow it down. <laughs> and I, I get selfishly because I have a wife, I have kids, and I don't want to raise them. I don't want them to grow up in this dark world. But if that's what God wills, bring it on. Because here's the thing, as this world gets darker, the gospel of Jesus Christ shines more brighter. As this world gets more dark and things start getting more oppressive, then God's glory in the church is shown even more brighter. So yes, if this world gets darker, bring it on. God's glory is going to be displayed in our church through Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Um, it is a, a, a challenging word, Lord, as it... Um, as Paul prays, Lord, he, 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 he prays to someone he believes is big enough strong enough, awesome enough to deal with any issue the church may encounter. And Lord, we are challenged with that truth in our own lives. Do we view you as big, as awesome, as glorious enough to, to deal with our issues? that the issues we may be dealing with, the struggles, the pain that we're, we're dealing with may seem like a Mount Everest of a, of a problem. 
but that's nothing compared to you. And that you can strengthen us through your spirit with power to get through it. And Lord, that power will never run dry. So thank you for this truth. May it inspire us to pray, not as a last resort, but as the first thing. May we be inspired to pray for our church as we go through this season. Because the truth is, in our church, just living our lives in this world, we need you. We need you every second of every day. Help us, Lord. Help us. We thank you that you are a God, even though you're so big, you are so great and sovereign, you still hear us and you respond to us. Thank you. Lord, I pray that these words would encourage whoever's listening online here in this in this room, especially those who are going through some hard times, that the God who loves them with a love that is beyond their comprehension, that a God who is so powerful, we can't even comprehend it, loves them, is for them, will strengthen them, will help them. Sometimes, Lord, the answer, the answers to our prayers are not what we desire, but you still step in and help us accept the answers and trust you. So thank you again. You are glorious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.